0: Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Heart of BRCC. Our vision is to build a biblically based, Christ centered, caring community. This morning, uh, Tony Marsh is going to be sharing the word with us. He's going to be doing the third part in this series we've been doing on the heart of BRCC. What's our heart here at Bay Ridge? And uh, so. Tony and I have been friends for something like that, which means we're fairly old at this point, both of us, but uh, we've uh, known each other for a long time, and again, he's going to be being ordained as an elder uh, here in a couple of weeks, and we are really privileged to have him. I've heard him teach before over in Africa in a little bit different context. We were out in a remote village uh but today he's going to be bringing the word so i encourage us to listen and hear what it means to be a caring community and in a few minutes we'll be back up and we will come to the lord's table so i also want to remind everybody real briefly as well if you have not uh, been aware or seen stephanie is setting up right now and doing this uh we are testing out facebook live a number of people in the church have found out when they've been traveling so if you are out of town or homesick and can't be here actually each week the teachings are up on video as the teaching is happening and so you can actually watch along we had a number of people a couple of weeks ago that were out and about in different states discover we were there and we hadn't even announced it yet so but we are doing that each week so that's kind of going on so tony
1: go ahead and good morning raise the word. our reading today is from first peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 as you come to him the living stone Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a precious, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Brett mentioned, we're on the last of a three-part series about our vision for BRCC, what's our purpose, what's our calling. In the first two parts, Brett talked about being Bible-based and Christ-centered. And if you, haven't done so, I encourage you to download those teachings and listen to them, they're they're amazing. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about what any of that has to do with being part of a caring community. What particular kind of church does Christ and Scripture uh, tell us, BRCC, and really all Christian churches that we're supposed to be? According to Gallup, about 90% of Americans today believe there is a God. And that number has been pretty consistent over the last century or so. Uh, Back in the middle of the last century, century, nearly 80% of Americans said they attended church regularly, at least once a week and often more often. What we would call frequent churchgoers. But in the last 70 years, we've seen a dramatic change in that number. Because today, only about 38% of Americans will say they'll attend any worship service at all during the course of the year. And that includes mosques and synagogues. That means more than 60% or so of Americans will not step into a church during the course of this year. And another 20% will only go once or twice. That means there are more than 80% of people who are not knit into a church family. And, and when asked they say the biggest reason is they prefer to worship on their own or they don't like organized religion. They, they don't like the people. Uh, they don't like the rules. Uh, they don't like being called sinners. They don't know the gospel. They can't know God. Because what this passage and many other passages in Scripture tell us is we can't know God apart from being in deep relationship in a community of believers. So today we're going to explore three different aspects of what a caring community looks like. First, what community looks like inside our church with fellow believers. And second, what community looks like outside the church with people who don't know us, don't agree with us, maybe even are antagonistic towards us. And third, we're gonna talk about where we get the courage and the strength to live out what Christ and scripture are calling us to be. So first, what particular kind of church are we supposed to be? It's important to see in verse five that you and me, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. As I was preparing for this, Brett and I met, as you can imagine, I needed some instruction. Um, And he made a really good point. He said, we are living stones. We're we're not standardized, measured, and cut, baked pieces of clay. We're not bricks. We're we're, we're unique. We're odd shaped. We're imperfect. We're different colors and different textures. We we each bring a, a unique character to the building process. So first it's important to understand everybody inside the church is different. We have different backgrounds, different experiences, different cultures, different attitudes. And it's important to see this because every stone in a wall is dependent on every other. Uh, If I'm up here and the the stone down here falls out, I fall out. And if I'm down here and the stone and, and I shake, all the stones above me shake. And notice it says we're living stones. Do you know why churches are, are called congregations and why we're not called collections or agglomerations or a horde? <clears throat> because we're not a bag of unrelated pebbles that roll around and bounce off one another. That, that's an aggregation. That's a group of people who come and listen to a speech, and, and then everybody goes their own way. Uh, a congregation means we share a common core, a common purpose. We're organically related to one another. We're animated by a shared force. That's what it means in 1 Corinthians 12:13 to 14. For we were all baptized by one spirit to, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even, though, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. And in Romans 12:5, when it says, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. You say, well that means we belong to Christ and that's true, but that's the least of what it means. It also means we belong to each other. We're all one body and each part of us is dependent on every other part. And I hope you see the implications of that because they're enormous, because it means there's no room for division. There's no room for hate. There's no room for arrogance or aggression. The foot doesn't divide from the hand. The the arm doesn't hate the leg. There'd be no point to that. So, So no matter your background, your color, your gender, your income, we're all part of one in Jesus Christ. All of us together, living stones being built into a spiritual house. What is the spiritual house Peter's talking about? Peter's pointing back to the temple, the tabernacle, and he makes a point that all the New Testament writers um, make at one time or another. Um, both, there exists both a very direct and at the same time almost a, an opposite relationship between the Church of Christ and the temple, uh, the Jewish temple and you remember the Jewish temple, that's where God God dwelt, in the temple, in a special place, in the holy of holies, in the most holy place. And no one could get back there except the high priest, and only one day a year at Yom Kippur. But worshipers couldn't get in. They couldn't draw near to God. They couldn't know the presence of God. All that changed, of course, when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. In Hebrews, it says in chapter 10, verse 19, that we enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, the veil was torn. The the most holy place was opened once for all. And now, all the worshipers could draw near. And and that was an amazing change, because before then they couldn't. The, The most important thing they could not experience. Because drawing near is what changes you. I'm sad and lonely, but... The presence of God gets me out of my sadness. I'm selfish, but drawing near turns selfishness into service. I'm unforgiving, but the love of God melts me into mercy. The presence of God transforms you. But in the days of the temple, you couldn't get back there. Except for a few select prophets, priests, and kings who God imparted his Holy Spirit to, you couldn't be transformed. How does the transforming presence of God through Jesus Christ get into your life, it's through community. It's as we're being built into a spiritual house, because that's where God dwells. God works on us in many ways, but one of the most important ways He works on us is through each other. I don't think anyone gets this better than C.S. Lewis, who in his book, The Four Loves, and the chapter in Friendship, tells this kind of very famous story. Lewis says, he was part of a circle of three friends who were very close to one another. He, Robert, and Charles. And then Charles dies. And Lewis discovers something very interesting after Charles dies. He comes to realize he could no longer know Robert the way he did before. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man completely into activity. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald." Do you see what he's saying? He's saying there was a part of Ronald he could only know because of Charles's presence. And now that Charles is gone, he'll never see that part of Ronald again. His his grief is twofold. He's lost Charles to death, but he's lost that part of Ronald that only Charles could access. He goes on to say, We possess each friend not less, but more, as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition with each, which each has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. Do you hear? He's saying you can only know God in a diverse group. The, the, a diverse group of people that are closely connected to one another. You can't know him unless you see him the way different people see him. Each with their own perspective, their own culture, their own background. Do, do you see how 80% of the people who aren't knit into a church are missing out? Do you see why they can't know God? They can only know a little fraction of God. And, and the part they know, others can't know, who, who, who they're not knit in with. <clears throat> to know God, you have to be in deep community. Uh, so what's that look like? Acts 2 tells us. And I just want to um, focus on two words in verse 44. What's it mean in verse 44 when it says all the believers were together? Now in verse 46 it says uh, all the believers met together. But in 44 it says they were together. Where were they together? Everywhere. In the temple courts, in, in their homes. When were they together? Constantly, relentlessly it says Every day they continued to meet together. They were continuously together. They couldn't get enough of each other. You couldn't keep them apart. Having come to Christ, they were thirsty to know him better, to experience him more fully. And they did that together. But by seeing not only what he did in their lives, but in the lives of people who were different than them. And in seeing that, they saw God more fully. They, they, They could trust him more completely That's how the transforming reality of God builds you up and changes you. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, we learn more about that happens. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a lot of things this passage says we're supposed to do in community. But I'm going to focus on just two. Um, two very different, almost opposite things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to spur one another on. And we're supposed to encourage one another. Spur means to confront, to, to cause pain. When, when, you, when you spur a horse, you take the ouchy end of the spur and stick it in the horse's flank to make him go. It, it hurts. But you and I know that our worst sins are the ones we don't want to hear about or, or that we're embarrassed about. or or even that we don't believe exist. Those are the sins we most desperately need to hear about. Look, Christian community isn't for sissies. It takes courage to confront and and be confronted. And unless you've granted someone permission to confront you about the sins you're embarrassed about or that you don't think you have, then you aren't being spurred on. And there's only so close you're gonna be able to grow to God. Hebrews goes on to say, we're to encourage one another. And that's almost the opposite of causing pain. That's to come alongside. It's to build up. It's to empathize. It's uh, it's to approve. And and we need that because we get disappointed. We, We get down. We question ourselves. We struggle. Look, if you're not part of a group of close Christian friends who have permission to enter your life that way, then you're missing out on what they have to give you. And they're missing out. On what you have to give them. Because he inhabits us collectively. He inhabits us as we're being built together. So that's our church. And that's what we're working to be. C.S. Lewis said, we're working to be carriers of Christ to each other. But what in the world does that look like to the outside world? The people who don't know us, don't like us, may even be antagonistic to us. And that's the second point we're going to talk about. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 14, Christ says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. So what's he saying here? At first, you know, he's talking about a light. He's talking about a city. It looks almost like two different metaphors. But in fact, it's one metaphor expressed in two slightly different, different ways. If you've ever been in an airplane at night, even a few hundred feet off the ground, and you looked out on the, the horizon, you can see a city from miles and miles and miles away. The light blasts up into the darkness. And 2,000 years ago was the same way uh, for, for a city built on a, on a hill or even a slight rise. The torches, the cooking fires, the light of the city could be seen for miles away. Um, here in verse 9, Peter says, We used to live in darkness, but he's brought us into the light. It says he's replaced the lie that we used to be trapped in with the truth of God that we can live in now. So when Christ says we're to be light of the world, a city built on a hill, he's saying we're to, we're to be responsible for living out the truth in a way that those still in the darkness can see from a long way away, just as you and I were once a long way away. But that's not so easy in our modern culture. We're less likely to talk about what's true today than we are to talk about whether anything is true, or, or at least whether anything is true for everyone at all times. Because in our society today, right and wrong only exist as far as what's right for me. What's wrong for me? My life belongs to me. Don't try to tell me what's right for me, what's true for me. It's the animating principle of our culture, is it not? It's horribly destructive. It kills community. And, and if you think that's only true in our culture, you're wrong because it's been true of every culture since the beginning of time. Since Adam, we've tried to put ourselves in the seat of God. <clears throat> Hesitate to bring this up, but Friday, I'm going to bring it up anyway. Friday, um, this is a silly example, but a grocery store in France cut the cost of Nutella. And, and Nutella is that chocolate stuff they put in crepes over there. It cut the cost of Nutella by 70%. It was pandemonium. There were riots. The BBC said people punched each other. Old people slammed into each other. People pulled hair. There were, people got bloodied. The French really liked Nutella in their crepes. <laughs> now, that hardly rises to the same level of a terrorist bomber in Afghanistan, which happened to occur the same day. But it shows you that we're, none of us are immune. We're all terribly bent. We're we're natural enemies. We're we're prone to terrible acts of selfishness. And and it seems to only affect our particular species because the rest of the universe couldn't survive this way. If If the electrons of an atom decided they wanted to revolve around something other than the nucleus of neutrons and protons, if each electron decided it wanted to be the center of the atom, you know what would happen. Existence would cease in a fiery cataclysmic explosion. But that's exactly what most people claim to think today. It's why marriages fall apart, it's why families fail, it's it's why businesses don't last, it's why friendships blow up. You can't be the center of the world, even your little part of it, any more than an electron can be the center of the atom. The the only way the atom works is if every electron agrees there's a common center. So what does that say about truth and, 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 and about how we're supposed to live? Two two verses, I think, um, tell us and they're the two verses following our reading today. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is saying that Christianity says there is a universal standard of truth. There is right and wrong. And if you live in the wrong way, it will war against your soul. That's one of the things Peter says when he says we're aliens, we're strangers. Because if you believe, <coughs> if you believe there's a difference between right and wrong, and, and, and if you believe the wrong will war against your soul, and if you live in a society that downplays the difference between right and wrong, or redefines it as what's right or wrong for you, then you're a stranger. You're an alien. Well, we have to understand that. And we have to see that the very careful balance that means we have to maintain as we engage with the outside culture. Some churches respond by watering down the message. They, they get rid of doctrine. They try to assimilate. To them, there is no heresy other than saying there is heresy. Uh, others withdraw, they, they attack society, they wall themselves off. They're aliens who have made the culture hostile. But neither of those are biblical because neither of those shine a light in the darkness. Neither represents a city on a hill. And, and Peter makes clear, we're supposed to be committed to that light. We're, we're, we're supposed to be un- unapologetically, absolutely committed to living out truth. And it should be seen on, in how we treat each other and how we serve the outs- those outside the church. We're aliens, but we're resident aliens. We're permanent aliens. We're aliens not just passing through. We're aliens who are committed to the well-being of those around us. Peter's saying we should seek not only to be a light, not only to display truth, but that the culture should be able to see your good deeds. And we should do it despite their accusing us of wrong. It doesn't say if they accuse us of doing wrong, it says they will accuse us. They have no choice, they can't understand us. Their worldview is different than ours. We're aliens and strangers. But at the same time they're accusing us, Peter says they'll recognize our good deeds. So when we show the truth through obedience to Christ, it'll be accusation. But when we show the love of Christ by our service, It'll be recognition. And if we're serving for the right reasons, because of what they get out of it, not what we get out of it, then even the pagans will glorify God. This is a difficult vision. It's a compelling vision, but it's a, it's a, it's a thin line. But if God is going to get the glory, it's going to be because of what they see us do. This it, is a line very nearly impossible to walk. It's certainly impossible to walk with perfection, but we won't walk it perfectly, but we'll get better as we work it out and as we walk it more faithfully. Amen. So the question is, how can we do this? How, how do we find the courage to refuse to assimilate, but the humility to serve those who vilify us? And the answer is here in 1 Peter. We have to come to the chosen and precious living stone the chosen and precious cornerstone. Well, what does it mean to come to him to build on the cornerstone? Well, first of all, you have to recognize what this scripture's saying. Peter says in verse seven, but to those who do, do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying, we're building. Everybody is building something We're building a life. We're building something on some sort of cornerstone, some sort of foundation. But it says if your cornerstone isn't Jesus, you've got a problem. Your cornerstone is flawed. Your foundation is shaky. You're not lined up with truth. And so your building is eventually going to fail. A lot of people feel pretty good about themselves until something bad hits, a financial setback, a health care problem, a relationship problem. And and then their identity takes a hit, their life falls apart. Why? Because if you make your cornerstone about you, about how you feel, about your rights, then every interaction becomes a transaction. Your relationships become what's in it for you. What can others do for you? Can you see how that kills community? The reading says, I lay in, in Zion, I lay a stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Saying is, it, 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 Peter is saying that if your cornerstone is anything other than Jesus, you will be put to shame. If your relationships are transactional, if they're based on you and what makes you feel good and what's in it for you, then you'll wonder why your life isn't happy. You'll decide that somewhere, somehow you missed out. You'll blame your spouse, your, your boss, you'll, you'll blame God. Because you'll come to believe that the thing that you'd been putting your hope in let you down. They didn't deliver the life you thought you were building. You'll wonder where it all went wrong. It went wrong because you didn't build on the right foundation. But if he's your identity, then you will not be put to shame. No matter the hits and the trials, uh, your identity will survive. And you will take hits. And there will be trials. But if you're lined up on the true cornerstone, Your identity will survive because your identity is in Jesus Christ. Here's the problem, though. It doesn't say you can agree intellectually. It doesn't say you can just decide with your head that Jesus is your cornerstone and go about your business. It says, those who believe find him precious. What's that mean? It means he has to be more important to you than anything else. He has to come first. And I'm not talking about first in your spiritual life. He has to come first in every aspect of your life. Is he more important to you than your profession, your business, your job? Is he more important to you than your family? Is he more important to you than your status or your house or your friends? Is he your justification? Is he your identity? What's precious to you? Because until everything else is expendable compared to Jesus Christ, he's not your cornerstone. You ask, how can I make Jesus that important to me? And the answer is right here. It says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You have to see what it means that he was rejected. He came to his own, but his own knew him not. He was rejected by his own people, he was rejected by his own family, he was rejected by his community. On the cross, he was rejected by his own father. The one true, perfect relationship he had known throughout eternity. Now all of a sudden, his father poured all the wrath in the universe out on him. And not for anything he had done wrong, but for what we'd done wrong. Why did Jesus accept that? Why did he suffer that? Because even in your sin, he chose you. He loved you. Because between saving his own life and your life, he chose you. Everything else, even his life was expendable compared to his love for you. Do you see what it means to be chosen? We're not choice, we're chosen. In fact, we were dead and he still chose us. We were his enemies, but he still died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Do you see what that means? Look what this says. It says, if he's our cornerstone, we will never be put to shame. Do you know why? Because on the cross, he took on our shame. He became shame. So we would never have to know shame. Because he found you precious, you now can find him precious. That's the heart of the paradoxical basis for salvation. And if we don't get that paradox, we won't build the kind of community God is calling us to. We won't come to the living stone. We can't be part of the spiritual house. What's the paradox I'm talking about? It's it's all over the Bible. It's it's one of the central themes of Scripture. And it's absolutely the opposite of what our culture tells us. A paradox is this. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And whoever loses their life saves it. He's brought down rulers, but lifted up the humble. To be first, you have to be last. It's the meek, not the proud, who inherit the earth. Tim Keller calls it the upside-down nature of the universe. John Bloom writes, Satan wants us to grow up to be like God, but God wants us to grow up to be like children. Here's the point. It's only when we accept the supremacy of Christ and admit we are utterly unqualified We are desperately hopeless. It's only when we fully appreciate who he is and what he's done that we living stones can come to the living stone. And that's how we're built into a spiritual house God delights to live in. How much does God love the Son? That's how much he loves you. How beautiful is Christ to the Father? That's how beautiful you are to the Father. Is he accepted? then you're accepted. That's where the courage comes from. That's where the humility comes from. You can serve because he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve you. You can love because you'll never match the love he's given you. You can be misunderstood and vilified and persecuted and it won't matter. Who cares about the love of Pharaoh when the Lord creator, redeemer, king of the universe has loved you beyond death. Do you see how that solves every problem? Because every heartbreak, every broken relationship, every war, every hatred, every selfish deceit starts with me putting me in God's place. It starts with me wanting to be my own God. Do you see that? Do you see how that wages war against your soul and against the souls of everybody around you? But if Christ is my precious cornerstone, there's no room for hatred. There's no room for arrogance. It doesn't matter if the world vilifies you. They vilified him. It doesn't matter if they don't love you. He loves you. Do you see that if Christ is my cornerstone, I can put you first because he put me first. That's the kind of community we're called to. That's the love we're supposed to show the culture around us. And the the precious cornerstone of Christ is where we get the courage and the humility to pull it off. I'm going to guess it's pretty apparent how we apply this, but I have to go through these because Brett told me so. (laughs) Are you so built into the church that the lives of the people you know would be shaken if you were shaken? Would your part of the church collapse if your living stone fell away? Are you that close to a group of other believers in the church? Are you in a small group? Are there brothers and sisters you confess to, who confess to you? Have you granted permission to anyone else to spur you on, to encourage you? And are there people that you spur on and encourage? Because that's how you draw near to Christ. That's how he'll work on you. How, How do you relate to those outside the church when you're hanging around the water cooler? Do you assimilate so they don't know that you're a stranger or an alien? Or do you wall yourself off in your office? Or do you do what Peter says and engage? Does God get glory from your good works? And finally, what is your cornerstone? What's your identity? Is the cornerstone so precious to you that everything else is expendable? I heard a sermon by Tim Keller a while back and the entire sermon was about 40 minutes long, so I'm not gonna go into it, but I'll give you the elevator version. Do you know the penalty for sin? What is death apart from Christ? It's separation, it's rejection. On the Christ said, on the cross, Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The penalty for sin was total separation, total rejection, total aloneness. On the cross, that's the penalty Jesus Christ bore on your behalf. He was forsaken, so you and I don't ever have to be. He was rejected by the Father, so you and I aren't. He died the death that should have been yours and mine, so you don't have to die. He gave up his life so you could live eternally. On the cross, he suffered hell, so you and I don't have to. Do you get that? Do you understand how precious you are to Christ? Is he that precious to you? Let's pray. Uh, Father God, help us uh, in 2018 to be the community that you're calling us into. Uh, help us to love one another. Help us to uh, contend with one another. Help us to confront one another. But help us to love and encourage and build each other up as well. Uh, Father God, help us to be a light to the outside world. Help us to show truth as we live it out. and Help us to serve Uh, Not for our benefit, Father, but so that you would get the glory. Uh, Father, and help us to keep our eyes on what's important, on our King, on our Redeemer. Help us to make Him uh, the most precious thing to us. Father, we, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thanks to Tony for bringing the Word this morning. Yes, amen. I'm encouraged. Um, and I, I hope you were encouraged and fed as we're, we're doing that and as uh, Tony is teaching here and I was praying I, I wanna, as we're going to come to the table I want to read Ephesians two eleven through 22 which, which kind of encapsulates many of these thoughts of what Christ has done for us both in our relationship with God but at the same time what that means in our relationship with one another and even how it provides the basis for us to relate to those outside the community. Ephesians 2.11, the Apostle Paul says this, Hear God's word, hear the gospel. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by the hands of men, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Notice what the apostle tells us there. We were far away. Earlier in Ephesians, he told us how far you were dead. You were a dead stone. So was I. But Christ Jesus made us alive, and he brought us who were far away near to God. But the amazing thing, if you notice there, Paul said when he did that, he not only brought us near to God and abolished the hostility between us and God, he brought us near to one another. And he broke the dividing wall and the hostility we had between one another. Because, of course, if you go back and you look at the fall, it not only created hostility and hiddenness between us and God, it immediately created hostility and hiddenness between Adam and Eve. And so Christ's death has reconciled both. And so we're going to come here, and I want, as we come to the table, remember the good news of the gospel. Whatever your sin, Christ is greater. The gospel is greater. God's grace is deeper and broader. But here's the second part of that. That also means that that greater, deeper grace, that greater, deeper work of Jesus Christ is greater and deeper than anything that would separate you from any brother or sister. And so, the only thing that would prevent me from receiving reconciliation with God is my refusing the work of Christ. And the only thing that can prevent me from being reconciled to my brother and sister is the same thing. Because the same death that reconciled me to God has reconciled me to you. And that's good news for us. And so we're going to come to the table and receive and rejoice in the reconciliation with God. But also receive and rejoice in the reconciliation with one another. And then ask God to use that as a launching point. We, we are called here. We are in this community, and we are a church for this community. We, we talk and pray constantly about missions, and we will always do that. But where does the mission field start? Right here. Okay? Tony gave that stat from the from the Gallup poll, Anne Arundel County is worse. The latest stats we have in Anne Arundel County is 85% of the people in this county will not be in a church, synagogue, or mosque this weekend of any sort, much less one that's preaching the Scripture, proclaiming the Gospel, exalting Christ. You and I live in a mission field, and the good news is we're sent into that mission field reconciled with God and part of a family, sent to people who are cut off from God and cut off from others. And we are awash in social media, technology, and means of communication, and never been more lonely. And we have the privilege of going and saying what you need is a relationship with God. And what you need is relationship with other people. And I can tell you how you get both. And you get them through broken body and shed blood. If you are here today and you are a believer, we invite you to this table. You do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church because there is one church which has been formed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you have done exactly what Tony was so clearly proclaiming there, that your trust is in Christ, you have no reason to be ashamed, and we call you to the table this morning. If we're not believers, then we should let this meal pass because this meal is a proclamation that I believe my only hope before God, my reconciliation, what has brought me near, what has turned me from a dead stone to a living stone is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ plus nothing. Nothing else adds. All we can do is detract. But if we believe that, then I encourage you, come to the table today. For what I received from the Lord Jesus I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we come to this table this morning as those who would have every reason to be ashamed. Lord, we are sinners by nature. And we are sinners by choice. Lord, in every day, we have increased our debt. Because every day, we have disobeyed and we have not conformed to your law perfectly. We have sinned in what we have done, and we have sinned in what we have left undone. But we come because our hope is in Jesus Christ. And we believe that his broken body and shed blood are, are sufficient. And so we cling to the scripture text from this morning, that we trust in him. He is precious to us, and therefore we will never be put to shame. Father, receive us through the blood of Jesus Christ, by the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them, and we will take them together in a couple of moments, and I encourage you to think through where God wants to work reconciliation between you and him and if there is between you and someone else and then ask the Lord to work that reconciliation and then we will take together Lord Jesus as we stand before you now we hold this bread the symbol of your body which was broken Lord, your body was not broken because of your sin, but because of ours. Lord, you took flesh, and you came, and you lived in perfect obedience to the Father every second of every day, with your every thought, your every desire, your every attitude, and your every action. But Lord, we realize that we are shot through with sin. And Lord, in taking this bread and holding it now, we proclaim nothing less than that we recognize we are sinful, that we were far away, and that what we deserve is the wrath of the Father poured out on us. But in taking this bread, we proclaim that we believe you were forsaken, that we might be accepted, that you were crushed, that we might be healed that you were put to death that we might be raised to life and so Jesus we simply say thanks be to God for the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we are saved take and eat and Lord as we heard in your word this morning The effect of our sin is not only alienation from you, but it is alienation from one another. And Lord, so often we look at our fellow humans, those who have been made in your image. And rather than looking at them in love, we look at them in lust. Rather than looking at how we could serve them, we look at for what we could get from them. Father, we hide from one another. We have used one another. Lord, we have been the exact opposite of the image of God, where you, Holy Trinity, are always loving and giving, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have been rejecting and trying to take. But Lord, as we heard this morning at the very beginning of our worship, you tell us that if we walk in the light, as you are in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of of Jesus purifies us from every sin. And so, Lord, according to that scripture, we confess our sins, and we trust that your blood, Jesus, is sufficient to cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness and to heal us so that we are not only one with our Father, but that we are able to walk in unity with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we are grateful for the blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God that has restored us to our Father and is building us together with our brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, as your people, we say, thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we thank you for meeting us here today. Lord, you invited us into the presence of the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you have raised us up to the very throne room of God. You have even met us here at this table. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us this week that we would live in unity with the Father, that we would walk closely, that every day we would be building on that cornerstone. We ask that each day you would help us to be building in with one another, that we would recognize we do not walk this walk alone. You never called us to that, that we would spur and encourage others in their walk with Jesus and allow others to do that for us. And Spirit of the living God, I pray for us that as we live in the midst of a society where we are aliens and strangers, that we would neither become hostile back nor withdraw but rather we would so let the light of Christ shine within us that they would praise God for the good deeds they see. Lord, that is not something we could do on our own, but we trust Spirit of the living God. You who hovered on the chaotic waters at the dawn of creation and brought form and shape and life out of them, you can do the same for us. And so we ask, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us, fill us, mold us, use us for your glory and for our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we will conclude with the word of benediction. I'm going to use benediction from St. Paul to the Romans. In Romans 15, I encourage you by faith, the same faith with which we trust in Christ, to receive the blessing of God. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God do this by his Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.